Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The fear of death was the soldier's constant companion in battle, but even worse than death itself was the fear of being forgotten in death, lost to loved ones at home who might never learn the fate of their boy. There were no dog tags or other identification issued by the government, so some entrepreneurs produced identification tags that soldiers could buy. Today, these small metal discs provide a curious window into the past, and we'll look through that window with Joseph Stahl, collector and co-author of Identification Discs of Union Soldiers in the Civil War, on Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone faces conflict at home, at work, in the community, in the world. Fix Your Conflicts is a show about how to fix those conflicts with practical tips and techniques. Doug Knoll brings to the Internet airwaves the first of its kind, a show that teaches peaceful resolution to life's daily battles. That's Fix Your Conflicts with Doug Knoll, broadcasting live every Monday at 11 a.m. Pacific on World Talk Radio Studio A. Answer the president's call to service. As an AmeriCorps member, I know that Americans everywhere are helping each other, showing strength of character. As a senior Corps volunteer, I know that Americans are showing kindness and compassion. As an AmeriCorps member, I see plenty of American spirit and enthusiasm. Together, we make America strong. Together, we make America great. Find out how you can serve at nationalservice.org. It's your world. It's your chance to make it better. Apply online at nationalservice.org. The world is talking. World Talk Radio, Studio A. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But, as always, not speaking on behalf of the university, nor does it speak for me. Legally, we are separate entities, and my opinions are my own. The university's opinions, if it in fact had opinions, uh, would be its own as well. And the same is true for our guest. He'll speak for himself as ever. We are in our fifth season here on Civil War Talk Radio. had uh, interesting guests, I'd like to say, every week thus far. I've certainly learned something from, from all of them. And we'll have more in the future. Next week, Matthew Pinsker will join us to talk about Lincoln's secret hideaway, the the Lincoln soldier's home, uh, the summer cottage to which the Lincolns repaired during the Civil War. And we'll have additional interesting guests in the weeks that followed. Uh, Eventually, uh, Ed Ayers, president of the University of Richmond, will be with us, and others. I will... Uh, not be able to join you for a new show the week, uh, second week of November. We'll take a, a week off then, as I will be in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, for the Lincoln Forum on November 17th and 18th, and be happy to meet some of you there. Uh, the weekend before, I will be in Asheville, North Carolina, not uh, not participating in any uh, Civil War-related conflict, but rather. Uh, representing Greenville in the state games as part of the men's over-50 
soccer team from this part of the state, uh, having just turned 50 this past uh, month. It's a big step, I find, in my life, because now instead of being the oldest guy in the over-40 team, I get to be the youngest guy in the over-50 team, and I can knock down some of those gray beards and uh, outrun them and do the things uh, that I've, I've, other people have been doing to me for the last couple of seasons. So assuming I survive that uh, and, I'm not, and I'm able to return to work the following week, we'll be back on the air with more shows then. But uh, that all rests in our future. In the meantime, uh, keeping up with the housekeeping, I want to thank all the listeners who have sent uh, some excellent suggestions for guests on the show. Uh, some are on the list already of people we've contacted or hope to contact, and I've added new names in the past week and look forward to getting them on as well. If you're interested in supporting the show with your donations, uh, the address, email address to do that is civilwartr at aol.com, and your PayPal donation is gratefully accepted and used for uh, show-related expenses. But it's not a uh, charitable contribution. There's no organization, no 501c3 set up here. Uh, so unfortunately, you cannot deduct it. And fortunately for me, I am not uh, bound by anything other than mere ethics from spending it on uh, personal indulgences rather than Civil War books, which are actually the same thing now that I think about it. Before getting to our guest, which I'm looking forward to doing in just, just a second, uh, some current events. This is October 2008 as we speak, and the same battles that the Civil War community had to fight in the 1990s uh, are being fought again in this decade. In terms of historic preservation, uh, specifically uh, the wilderness in Virginia, site of, of course, the Battle of the Wilderness uh, close to the Chancellorsville, battlefield, Spotsylvania battlefield. The wilderness is, uh, unless something is done, about to become host to a 141,000 square foot Walmart supercenter. Walmart owns four stores within 20 miles of the wilderness battlefield, but four are not enough. They must have five, and they must put it right in the heart of this important uh, Civil War heritage site. The, a, a group, a large group of organizations has mobilized to try to suggest to the local zoning board and county commissioners and other people that this is not a wise thing to do, that you can have Walmarts everywhere. Uh, here in Greenville, North Carolina, they're about to build one near my home and destroy my equity. Well, can't do anything about that. Uh, but they are, but we can do something about the one at the wilderness because that's everybody's historical equity at risk. And uh, Walmart can be anywhere, but there is only one battlefield uh, of the wilderness. A letter from a group of historians has been circulated. I was uh, proud to be asked to sign it and have done so, and that will be appearing uh, probably in the next month or so. But in the meantime, if you are interested in contributing, uh, look up the Civil War Preservation Trust uh, there are, there are many other groups of Friends of Fredericksburg Area Battlefields, Friends of Wilderness Battlefields, Central Virginia Battlefields Trust, National Coalition for History, National Trust for Historic Preservation, National Parks Conservation Association, uh, Piedmont Environmental Council. All these groups are working together, but the coordinator, the central group in this fight is the Civil War Preservation Trust. And uh, look them up on the Internet, get their 
address, find out what you can do to uh, help in preventing this desecration of uh, another uh, of the dwindling uh, Civil War sites in the United States. So that's uh, today's preservation sermon. I uh, probably don't talk about historic preservation as often as we ought to on the show, but sometimes something comes up that is too big to be ignored, and this idea of a, uh, a Walmart, which not only itself would be a huge imposition on the battlefield, but w would in turn attract other development around it and uh, would crowd out uh, open space, would end up with people's houses on the battlefield, uh, services on the battlefield, would uh, really take away the experience of visiting this, this part of the country. So if you want to fight that, uh, again, contact the National, I'm sorry, the Civil War Preservation Trust. So moving on from that, uh, today's uh, guest is Joseph Stahl, who has written a book uh, with the ungainly title, Identification Discs of Union Soldiers in the Civil War, A Complete Classification Guide and Illustrated History. Uh, Joe, are you with us? Yes, I am. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Um, this this book is, uh, well, the uh, the phrase labor of love is perhaps overused, but uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you got interested in this subject and, and what uh, what brought you to uh, union identification disks. Uh, like a lot of people, I had uh, an interest in the Civil War, and when I moved to Virginia in uh, 1979, I started visiting battlefields and going to Gettysburg and places like that. And as part of that, I discovered... Civil War shows and found um, <clears throat> that there were memorabilia available and you could become a collector, which where I was born in St. Louis was uh, not possible easily. And so for a number of years, I collected images and manuscripts, primarily of general officers, both sides. And it began to get, one, too expensive. And I'm an engineer by training, so I tend to try and define groups that I can put limits on so I have some constraint on my spending process, shall we say. Oh, we should all have that. That would be nice. <laughs> uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to do sometimes, but if you work at it, you can find them. And uh, I got to the point that, uh, one, I was getting, how do I want to say this, uh, less interested in what the senior officers were doing and what was happening to the privates. And I was looking for something that was personal, personable to them and identifiable that I could research because uh, my background is to do research in that area in various areas. And I looked at core badges and I looked at images and things like that. And I had several people who had seen one or two identification discs or the, the shields, the silver shields, which you also see. And they said, why don't you start looking at these discs a little more? And so I started acquiring a few, looking for a theme to collect around, to build a collection. And one of the things I stumbled into was that each one of these discs, by nature, has a story because it's got a soldier's name on it and a regiment and a company. And once you get into these things a little bit, you discover that surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, when you deal with the bureaucracy, there are lots of records and if you spend a little time digging around in the National Archives, you find out 
many interesting little tidbits about these individual soldiers. But before getting into some of the stories, and I want to ask you about that, uh, you said you were an engineer by trade and did, did research. What did you do uh, during the day when you were in, in Virginia before going to uh, the shows on weekends, let's say? Uh, well, I worked for a place called the Institute for Defense Analyses. We did uh, analytic studies, uh, wrote reports on questions that were brought up by Congress or the Office of the Secretary of Defense, primarily a, a, a federally charted nonprofit organization uh, with the intent, since we were not officially government employees, that if we thought the government was making a stupid decision, we could say so on paper and they couldn't fire us, so to speak. How did, did that work, actually? Uh, yeah, it, uh, it works occasionally. I won't say it's perfect, as you can imagine, but hmm. it does, uh, does take place. Interesting. Wow. In, uh, so, so you were, um, so while doing this, you discovered uh, the world of these identity disks. Now, uh, I said in the introduction, the government didn't issue right. these disks. Uh, these are privately made? Yes. Uh, how did that, uh, how, uh, why, why did the soldiers do this, or, or why didn't the government do this, do you suppose? Um, I think it's a, uh, two things. There was, in the book, that we documented a guy who came in in, in 1862 with a proposal to uh, supply them to the government so they could issue them, and it was turned down. There's no, uh, no reference to why, although I s- suspect by that point in time the, the private enterprise was already making significant numbers of them. They came out of the, the industry that made tokens, uh, before the Civil War and during the Civil War, you may be familiar if you have researched into coins a little bit, people hoarded coins and, and there was a shortage of coins. So there were a number of private mints that made what are called tokens that merchants would buy and stamp on them good for five cents at uh, John Smith's uh, hardware store or variations of that. So and, it's like private money. Yes. Exactly really, so, and uh, was very prevalent in the 1850s. <coughs> excuse me, uh, because of the car- shortage of coinage. And uh, for example, Scoville Brass Company, which is still in existence, uh, was making them in the 1850s and really became one of the leaders around 1857, 1858, because they developed a very good process for using brass which became uh, uh, very common if you look in the book. Most uh, significant percentage of the uh, ID disks are brass. And they actually got into a little argument with the federal government because the, the design on the reverse was often a patriotic theme, you know, a shield or an eagle or George Washington. And uh, the one design they had, they used an eagle with uh, spread wings and... Uh, their brass token was exactly the same diameter as the uh, $10 gold piece of the period, and the eagle design looked very similar. It was not exactly perfect. And, of course, it didn't say $10. But uh, there's some accounts in the mysticist world where uh, people would put a gold wash on this token and try and pass it off as a $10 gold piece, which uh, annoyed the federal government, shall we say. I mean, I mean it's, not, it's not counterfeiting. They're not pretending that it's... Right, uh, money, but it. it I, I'm thinking that this is an interesting concept because, from a uh, economic standpoint, uh, 
Right. Uh, it, it puts money into circulation. If it's if the stuff is used as money, it's a way of right creating increasing the money supply, which would increase inflation, which would benefit long-term debtors like farmers. Yeah, uh, see, they have all kinds of effects. The government was dealing with a problem that the coins, um, especially the silver ones, the silver was more valuable than the face denomination occasionally of the coin. So people didn't want to spend them because they were worth more as bullion than they were as coins. And, of course, people would melt them down uh, to get the bullion, and which means there's no longer coins in circulation. So, uh, so you've got a whole industry of people making these coin-shaped tokens. Right. And as we, as we documented, there were a number of well-named, well-known individuals, Miriam and Lovett and uh, Smith, who used, we can identify through their die marks on their, uh, that were used on the ca- uh, stamping. Um, the George McClellan style, which is Civil War, obviously, um, there are actually die marks that you can see, which are pointed out in the book. And there was the, patriot- the patriotic tokens for elections were also done. I mean, there's a number of the, uh, the variations of the McClellan were also used. To, they were medallions, to use that terminology, uh, for the presidential election of 1864, and Abraham Lincoln similar. So, so you've got uh, so you've got an industry that produces something that looks like a coin. You've got people, soldiers who want to be identified. Right. Uh, so you've got a natural connection here. And you said there was one attempt to get the government to do it, but instead of that, the private market fills the gap, and soldiers buy these. Uh, how do they get their names on them? Uh, um, the well, one thing I should point out there was a, there's a big difference. These these are stamped, so the lettering was done, and our surmise because we've never really seen one, we read about them, but we haven't seen one, was that the the sutlers who were the merchants who were licensed to you know go to the regimental campsites came into a campsite and he had a kit with the letters, and the soldiers would sign up. And interestingly, we haven't been able to find out how much they cost. Um, because these are not what you see if you go like in Harper's Weekly or uh, the Tribune and look in the ads. What you'll see are for the, the usually the silver, more expensive shield kind of things that the officers tended to buy because they were frequently, you know, two and a half dollars, a dollar and a half, three dollars, which when you're a private and getting $13 a month is a little expensive, shall we say. So our surmise is these were much cheaper, um, but we have no documentation of that uh, so far that we've been able to find. And uh, so it's it's very similar. We surmise in World in World War One, when the government was issuing dog tags, they actually issued to uh, a sergeant in each company a kit, and he had the individual letters, and he had a, a template you know, that he could put the letters in to hold them straight line and kind of center, and he would just hit it with a hammer, you know, and stamp it in. So it's... it's. Uh, so so the theory is that the sutlers had some kind of stamping kit. Right, and and, they, and it's pretty apparent that as the war went on, um, and most of the, the stamping with the soldiers' names and regiments are individual letters, you can tell, because they're not always perfectly aligned and things like that. But there were individual stamps with much smaller lettering, which you may see if you look at, like, uh, the, the disc from uh, 
Private Ames in the 3rd Michigan where the battles were stamped on the disc that the soldier had participated in. And they're in a much smaller font, uh, very straight, and always seem to have the same shape. For example, some of them are curved uh, to fit around the edge and fit into the middle, like seven days before Richmond is frequently seven days, and then underneath it curved is before Richmond. And those, we suspect, because we've seen a couple of dies where that much smaller was a complete word that he would hit with, you know, one stamp, so to speak. And, and put the whole battle scene all at once. All at once, correct. Joe, we're going to take a short break now, and okay. listeners will be back in just a moment. We'll talk more with Joseph Stahl about union identification discs, where they come from and what they did. We'll do that when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 